0: blog talk radio chatting with sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future they've been providing a means for new embedding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged welcome to chatting with sherry i'm really excited to welcome award-winning screenwriter and producer tom blumquist we're going to be chatting about film, TV, uh, the writing room, his new book, and uh, a bunch of stuff. It's really a cool talk. It is recorded, so please don't call in. Here's Tom. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Thank you.
0: I'm really excited to be chatting with you. It's um, it's a delight. And... um yeah
1: we'll see about that it may not be a delight ah. it may actually be arduous but you know thank you for you know (laughs) cutting me the slack ahead of time
0: oh I like to cut slack no um (laughs) uh no but you 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 wrote uh and, and some of the stuff of my childhood you know riptide and things like that um I have this question because I was watching an interview with James Gardner, and he was talking uh, about uh, Stephen Cannell, and he said that he gave him, he made him the creative producer because his script was brilliant. He was a hardworking writer, but also he didn't want to lose him. (laughs) Did anybody give you a break like that when you started?
1: Well... Uh, I've had a couple of breaks, Um, you know, uh, just in general. I think in the entertainment industry, unless you have uh, at least one mentor, a a meaningful, hands-on, cares-about-you mentor, it just can't happen. You know, there's some talented people who never get a chance at this because they never had a mentor who, who could maybe help. Them avoid mistakes or, or, or you know, turn left instead of turning right, that kind of thing. So I've had a couple of mentors, um, and Stephen J. Cannell was one of them. Um, but uh, uh, the, uh, the first one was a producer named Dwayne Bogie, Dwayne C. Bogie, and he was a, an executive at Footcon Building Advertising in Chicago. And he kind of found me as a college student getting ready to graduate, and plucked me out of obscurity and made me a, a junior executive on the team that developed and and uh, produced the Hallmark Hall of Fame specials,
0: oh, which really? were done on
1: NBC. And so right out of college, I'm off to Europe and working with Orson Welles and Victoria De Sica and all of these amazing people uh, blew my mind, and I learned from him taste and judgment and how to treat people uh he he, you know hallmark hall of fame has won more Emmys than any Mm -hmm. television program in history and duane was a big part of that for a long time in his career so i spent a couple of years learning from him about scripts and stories and actors and directors and was on location with him uh and his and his secretary kathy uh and it, it was at that point that I realized what I really wanted to be was the guy writing these movies and, and these shows. And so I found my way to Los Angeles where I pursued that. And it took a while. Uh, and I did other kinds of things in the industry. And then Steve Cannell, uh, read one of my scripts and changed my life. You know, he just changed my life. Suddenly I was writing and producing these hit network shows and that he created. and, and it was, um, uh, you know, lightning strikes once, sometimes it strikes multiple times. And in my case, it struck a couple
0: of times. I think that's really cool. Um, it's funny because I was an actress when I was younger. Sev- when I was 17, my first real job, and I had one line, was in a Hallmark movie.
1: <laughs> oh, how funny. It
0: was that's called great, wait, wait. Thursday's Child with Rob Lowe and Jenna Rollins. Wow, I said yeah, no, so it was that was got me my aftercard.
1: <laughs> well, that was not one I worked on, but I know the title and uh, so it just you know these these journeys that people like me uh, take in the industry are rarely a straight line. you know they I uh, uh, used to say to my students uh, when I was teaching at the university level that I know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the entertainment industry, and not one of them is doing what they set out to do. <laughs> Every, Everybody—I mean, the people that wanted to be writers became directors. People that wanted to be directors became actors. People who wanted to be actors were editors, and and so forth. I mean, literally, nobody is doing what they set out to do, and it's because of several things. But you know, one of them is just the opportunities that occur. A door opens, and you jump through it, and. Uh, But another is that when you have um, some ability at this stuff, whatever it is, storytelling, let's call it, uh, there's a lot of ways you can explore those interests and those abilities that you have. There's a lot of ways to tell stories, and it's not just being a writer or an actor. You can tell it being the editor or being the sound design person or being any number of people the, the sound mixer, they're all contributing to the story being told and, and they're affecting how it's told and what the audience thinks and feels. So um, nobody takes a straight uh, line, you know, and, and sometimes they're just bizarre and almost hilarious shifts and, you know, sea, sea changes in somebody's career as you just kind of go along. Yep. Um, it's just, a, you know, an interesting dynamic.
0: And it's so collaborative that it's interesting. It's collaborative and can be combative, too. But it's so interesting, the film and TV industry, well, and theater, too. They're all the same in the collaboration. Mm -hmm. Do you find that it was... Is it something you just kind of fell into, the rhythm of, like, the writing room?
1: Um, No, I certainly would not, not call it falling into. I crawled into it over broken beer bottles you know (laughs) trying to get through and they kept locking the door on me uh the the people in the room that that kind of room uh have gotten there through all their own respective paths so you everybody had a different way of getting there and you know in my case i'd worked on those hallmark movies i'd read so many books and plays and screenplays and and learned a bit of taste and judgment as i mentioned and then uh, I was in writing workshops trying to learn how to do episodic television, which really interested me a lot because I watched TV a lot growing up. And, and I liked that idea, at least in the old days, of a, you know, one hour once a week you know, taking the audience on a journey. So it took a long time for me to be ready. To do that uh, at a professional and competitive level uh, you know some people are kind of savants and they, they, they sit down and write a script and they're geniuses from day one and I had a couple of friends that were that, were that way we mere mortals you know tend to not be that way we have to learn and struggle with our crafts um, to be able to do this competitively it is very competitive there are a lot of really good people who are doing this or trying to do it. Um, there are a lot of well-connected people who may or may not have all those same abilities, but they still are present because they have, you know, their Uncle Harry, you know, is a vice president at Universal Studios or something. And, um, and then, you know, you're kind of, you have to learn to do this, um, with a thick skin, um, it doesn't always go right it doesn't always go well Um, I I used to say that the industry is not fair at all nothing fair about it Uh, I know people personally who are much better writers than me that never made it and and why or how they didn't make it I, I, I don't know it just wasn't fair but it does tend to be reciprocal in that if you hang in and keep punching at this and and perfecting your craft skills and your, you know, personality traits so when you are in the room with people, they, they actually enjoy working with you and all those kind of things. Uh, it may not be fair, but it is uh, mostly reciprocal. So if you hang in there and keep working at it and working at it, uh, ultimately a door will open and you'll be ready to step through the door. Uh, it's the people that get frustrated because it isn't fair, and they're, they just don't want to wait, and they move on. They, they, they say, this, this is nuts. I don't want to live my life this way. And they go do something else. Um, because it's really not for everybody. This is not uh, uh, like any uh, high-pressure profession. It's just not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ha- having ability or a big heart and good intentions, are just it, that, those things are just not enough. And there's other qualities that you need to put up with this when it's not going well or to survive people who you might not ordinarily want to associate with. Uh, You're spending a lot of hours with people. Um, And, you know, I was putting in 80 and 100 hours a week on the shows that I did for many, many years. And sometimes you're with people that you don't particularly care for. And sometimes you have people that you just love and it's like you were, you know, separated at birth. (laughs) But not everybody's cut out for that. Not everybody's wired for it. And it's a hard lesson um, because, you know, it isn't fair, as I said. It's just not fair. And everybody that has a big, you know, it's like everybody's got a big appetite, but, you know, you can't always finish the buffet, you know, and you can't even get past the uh, dessert table or whatever, <laughs> so bad analogy but you know, you get the point it, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's a very um, imprecise career path, any of these things, whether it's being the writer aspiring to be in the writer's room uh, or to be an actor on a set or a crew person working in the camera department on a, on a TV series, it's an imprecise path to get there and then to stay there once, once you get there because that's a whole other challenge is be to develop traits that people want to be around and want to work with because not everybody can do that either. You know, after you put in, you know, 14 or 16 hours, four days in a row, uh, you know, tempers tend to flare and people's patience tends to patient's kind of fragments and, and uh, you know, people's less attractive qualities often emerge. And, you know, it's, it's surviving and prospering in that setting that kind of sets people apart, you know, the ones that are destined to do this for a long time and people that really ought to probably go find something else to do because it's really not for them. And I've known lots of them, really talented people who just couldn't believe that life was going to be like that for the rest of their lives, so they just they didn't want to do that, and they shouldn't. That's all. It's, you know, it's not for everybody.
0: Um, we were introduced by one of the people who supported me doing both um, my Chatting with Sherry show and Sherry's Playhouse. In fact, he helped me decide to do Sherry's Playhouse. Stephen uh, uh-huh. L. Sears. And uh-huh. I just, did you guys meet in Riptide's writing room? Is that how you met? We, we met in prison.
1: Uh, <laughs> we were intimate, uh at San Quentin. Uh, can't discuss why we were there. Um, I was unjustly uh, accused. Uh, he, of course, deserved it. Uh, now, <laughs> we met, we met, uh, if you listen to this, sorry, Steve, I hate to you know, burst the bubble. Um, uh, I was working on uh, the Riptide series at Cannell Productions and those were the days when freelance writers were still um, welcomed and sought after. Uh, the goal was for the producers and story editors to not write all the scripts. Uh, it, you know, we in those days we felt that, you know, half the scripts could be written by somebody on the outside. You get fresh voices. You get fresh personalities in the room. It's just invigorated, in, uh, frankly, if you find the right people. And so we were looking for, I was promoted to story editor on that show, and we were looking for a couple of uh, uh, potential staff writers, the kind of low, low-rung staff person. Uh, that would grow into a story editor or producer job someday and uh, I, uh, we read several scripts uh, the producer I was working with um, found one writer um, uh, on the pile of spec scripts that people had submitted and I found another one and it was written by Steve and his uh, former partner Bert Burrell and it just knocked me out I loved it I showed it to my boss and she loved it and we had them come in. And it was a delightful meeting, and they were eager and young and very, very talented. They just had no experience, you know, and, but the talent jumped off the page. So we gave them an assignment, and they did a great job, you know, with you do several drafts of these scripts, and they were wonderful. And the next thing they knew, they were on staff as staff writers, uh, as was the other guy that my boss found so we had one writing team and one solo writer as brand new staff writers on our show and they were super talented and a lot of fun and you know they all spun off to do you know just you know great things in their career and uh and steve and bert were were good friends bert passed away as you may know and and uh steve and i have stayed friends and we, we did a couple other shows together. I hired him a few times as a freelance writer on shows that I did, and he hired me uh, on a show to freelance a script, and um, and it's really fun. Then because by then you can talk shorthand. You don't need to even com- talk in complete sentences because the other person has just as much experience as you, and they kind of are six steps ahead of you in what you're trying to say or think of, and you just it's it's, it's very invigorating. And uh, Steve, working with him is a lot like that for me. Cool. Everybody else hates him, but, but <laughs> you know, <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> He's such
0: an affable guy. You're so funny. <laughs> well,
1: uh, uh, he is a very affable guy, and he's, he's also uh, really quite brilliant. And uh, he has a, a, a devious and, you know, kind of clever story mind. Um, and you know for the kinds of shows we, we have worked on that's you know, that's imperative and um, and it's fun to be able to uh, I used to liken when I would go when I was a new writer at the Candle Company I'd go into a meeting with a couple of the executive producers and i they'd be trying to talk out a story the writer's room you called it and it was like being a first time tennis player being on the court at Wimbledon watching two international superstars Playing an intense tennis match. I mean, it was so amazing watching how fast their minds worked and how they could finish each other's sentences. And you're sitting there going, oh my God, what did they hire me for? I'll never be able to do this with them. And then, you know, in a few months, you're in it with them. And then within maybe, a, you know, I don't know, a year or so, you're, you're actually keeping up with them and contributing. And Steve was one of those almost from the very beginning. Uh, He he and Bert both were were real sharp with great insights and ideas, and no surprise that they both wound up um, both as a team and then separately did really well in their career.
0: Um, This is going to be sort of an odd question, but um, I'm like one of those geeky people who have to watch all the the behind-the-scenes things on their favorite TV series DVDs. Sure. And um, I was listen- they had uh, a lot of interviews on Remington Steel with all of the uh, writers. And one of the things they all said is that they took, a lot- he kept hiring younger and younger writers, uh, like you were talking about, the freelancers. And mm-hmm. a lot of them became huge, I mean, super huge. Mm-hmm. And they all said that they took what they learned from that writing room and they brought it in when they became the, you know, the creators of their own yep. series. Do you feel that you did the same thing when you went and started becoming creator of your own series?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, the, um, well, actually, my career path was a little different in that while I did write some pilots... Uh, I, I never created a series uh, that was on the air, but I wound up. My career path was one where I would usually be the, you know, they, they would hire somebody and and to get the show going, and then for one reason or another that didn't work out, and whether the ratings weren't right or they weren't getting along with the star or the network or whatever, and then I'd be the guy that would come in second or third to take over the show um, as. I used to call myself a trauma surgeon, you know, because the show would be in some kind of trouble um, and they were looking for somebody to come in and make some of that trouble go away. And, and that kind of became my, my thing. Um, but, in answer to your question, yes, uh, if you're paying attention, you learn from the people you are working for, the, what we call the showrunners, the executive producer showrunners. And the executives, uh, some, some studio and network executives are uh, just not very good at their jobs and, and you, you learn to, or you watch your bosses learn to work around them because they become impediments to the creative or the production process. Or you, and, and often, or periodically, you get executives who are amazing. They've got great story insights in there, understand production issues, and they can help you resolve them and you learn from them as well. So when you're a, story, a staff writer and a story editor and then a kind of junior level producer, you are working for a showrunner or a couple of showrunners who are the lightning rods for all the problems that happen, whatever it is. You know, an actor is having marital problems, and they're bringing their bad mood to the set, and it's an impediment to getting their work done in in a timely fashion. And you got to get down there and be a marriage counselor, and all of that. So you learn to to by watching and participating in how some of these solutions unfold. Um, I found that more than Im, uh, imitating the positive moves that my predecessors on different shows, you know, uh, the producers I work for, executive producers, uh, some of their techniques, I found that I would see mistakes happen. And you go, boy, you know, geez, if I were in charge, I'd never do that. Everybody feels that, you know, about their, their job. Oh, my God, I can't believe they're doing that. They, you know, that's never going to work, and then it doesn't work. Well, then you remember that. And then when you say to yourself, someday, if I'm ever in charge, I'm never going to do that that way. I'm only going to do it this way, or I'm always going to listen to these people, or I'm always going to whatever. And so I paid attention. I worked for some very talented producers, uh, Sorry, with the Hallmark uh, movies, but at Cannell especially, there were some people there that were genius writers, very experienced producers. Um, there were some people... That maybe we're better at one of those jobs than the other um, and there were all kinds of you know, personality things that unfolded with the crew and the directors and the networks and the actors and, and you learn by obs- observation so then when you're in charge now is your chance it's like okay hot shot you know you, you thought you knew better all those years well <laughs> prove it and and that's what you do uh, every one of us And I know Steve Sears would say the same thing. He learned by observation, and slowly getting more and more responsibility on the shows he was on as a story editor and a producer and what have you. But then, when you're in charge, you have the chance to avoid the mistakes that you saw happen—managerial type mistakes. You know, uh, usually not creative mistakes, but but just managerial things. You know, philosophy, uh, style of working people handling skills um, these jobs are just as much being a clinical therapist as they are being a writer or an actual hands-on nuts and bolts production producer you're mm-hmm. dealing with a lot of people you know a crew of 60 or 80 or 100 you know people you have uh, some of them are there for maybe the wrong reasons uh, some of them are super talented. Some of them need more hand-holding than others. Um, some of them, uh, just typical basic management one oh one type techniques. You know, you know, what is it? You know, who is Sherry? And what, what can I do as Sherry's supervisor to get the most out of her and make her contribute at her highest possible level? So I have to figure out. Well, what is her, what is her deal? You know, does she respond to praise, or does she need a strong, firm hand and uh, and directions that are clear? And you know, what is what will she respond to as my colleague on the show? And um, and once I figure that out as a producer or the showrunner, then I can work with Sherry and get the absolute most that she has to offer and make her feel good about herself because giving people the wrong management uh, input can be counterproductive. And I found that when I would take over these shows as as the new showrunner, I found that many of the problems were just management oversight. You know, people were handled and supervised incorrectly. Uh, sure, there were some people that were hired that maybe shouldn't have been in those particular jobs or you know, there were, the scripts you know took a creative direction that, that maybe wasn't optimal. You can fix that stuff um, with just a new creative approach, but it's the people handling, I'll call it, but the management style that really makes the biggest difference. If people respect you and what you're trying to do. If they see how hard you're working and your team is working, they will do anything for you. Uh, even, you know, if, if kind of callous industry veterans who, for whom this is just another job and they're not really invested in the show as a crew person. I'll tell you what, if they pick up on the fact that you actually care about what they do and who they are as people and what they have to contribute they will do anything for you because nobody ever or nobody often enough seems to acknowledge that or bring that out in them and I found that to be you know the the secret I learned that uh, from Dwayne Bogey on the Hallmark Hall of Fame but Steve Cannell was a masterful uh, uh, individual uh, and so were several of the other producers there that I worked with and worked for and you learn. If you don't learn, then there's something wrong with you because you've got to be paying attention because someday you're going to be in charge. And, you know, like I said, it's okay, hot shot. You know, now's your chance. <laughs> what are you going to what Show us what you got. And can you make it work?
0: That's and, interesting.
1: You know, and that's the deal. I. That's what this
0: is. I was just thinking as you were talking, i go, God, I wish you were my boss in several of my <laughs> my former jobs <laughs> because that was like the entire... Uh, way that they work with people. And I'm not talking about in the entertainment industry. I was just like, that's a great thought. That's a great way to look at it. Well, we've
1: all had those experiences. You know, we've all had the screamer, the yeller, the political operative, the nasty backstabbers. You know, we've been all around that, all of us. Everybody listening to this, you know, of course you pay attention and you make these private you know notes to self boy if I'm ever in charge I'm never going to treat people like this if I'm ever in charge I'm going to always do this Oh, look at how great that is I'm going to do that if I'm ever in charge and then someday you're in charge if you're lucky and then you do it and you know so I know Steve Sears Learned from some of these same lessons, of mm-hmm. the same company that we where we overlapped for a while, and, and 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 he learned from other shows that he worked on, and from other executives he worked. But you know that's what we do. And if you're paying attention, then it it can be done. You know, this is brain surgery. This is just you know putting on a play in the barn, you know, with a bunch of your friends. You know, <laughs> the, there's just lots of money involved, but the, the, it, we're we're still just telling stories and having having fun. And if you're not having fun, then you really need to look at who are you, why are you here, and and if you're not having fun, then nobody else on the show is having fun. And if they're not having fun, what do you expect the audience to pick up on? And there you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's also why some shows fail after a while, is that they, that part of it kind of just goes away.
1: Sure. There's Listen, there's a, 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 if this were a simple, one-size-fits-all creative approach, then everything would be a success. But the problem is most things fail. Most movies fail. Most TV shows fail. So, you know, it's it's not one size fits all. Each show is its own unique deal. And um, sometimes they, they stall out creatively uh, because they've been kind of suffocated either in the concept uh, stage or... um in the maybe micro-supervision of, of an executive somewhere, or just, a, you know, a lack of vision among the creative writers and directors. There's all kinds of reasons why these things don't work. It, it is alchemy, you know. You're mixing stuff up in a big pot, and you hope it works. And nobody really knows if it's going to work, but you, you hope it will, and you hope that you've learned along the way you know how to how to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and with with all your considered judgments, and uh, including which writers to bring in and which directors to bring in, that's that's huge. Um, you know, uh, you know. Well, I'll just share with you one little thing, and I and I know any TV producer who you interview for a show like this will say the same thing, but. If, if the person who is the executive producer comes from movies and they've never worked on a TV series, that person has probably been working in isolation, relative isolation, their whole career. They, they don't even know writers other than maybe going to the occasional Writers Guild meeting. You know, they don't know. So TV writers tend to work with other writers, and that's the writers room you were talking about. And so... They um, uh, some some people, you know, because they wrote a hit movie, they get a series that they're in charge of, but they, they don't know how to hire writers. They don't, never actually work with other writers and and so it can be a problem. And and somebody has to come in and kinda of say, Well, you know, that's how you did it in movies, but we have to do twenty two of these a year, you know, and you can't you can't operate with your scripts like everyone is a major motion picture, and you're going to do everything yourself. You, it can't be done. So, um, you know, those are kind of the kind of lessons you learn along the way, and then you just try to apply what you can whenever you can.
0: That makes sense. I, when did uh, how did Christie come about? Because I do love that that show and series and the movies.
1: And oh well, that was that was one of the. The the real blessings in my life, I'll tell you that. Um, There's a wonderful writer that I was friends with named Patricia Green. She had worked on Cagney and Lacey and uh, a bunch of other shows, and we were friends. We actually worked on a series together um, uh, briefly, and um, she received the assignment to adapt Catherine Marshall's wonderful novel into a pilot. Now, other people had tried that and failed over the years. Uh, they tried movie scripts, uh, they tried the TV scripts, and, and it was a difficult uh, creative challenge for, for many reasons. And Pat got the job, and she wrote a script that was amazing. She made all the right choices in how, you know, what to keep and what not to use just yet to tell a really good pilot movie. And so, uh, she handed that in, and then CBS loved it. And so they ordered, uh, they ordered the pilot to be shot, and they ordered six backup scripts, we call them. Uh, nobody knows if they're ever going to be shot, but in case they're going to be shot, this gets you ahead of the game a little bit. Uh, and they, they said, you know, we'll, we'll look at the dailies, the footage from the show, the pilot, and we'll look at these six scripts. And then if we like what we see, we'll just go ahead and stay in production, and, and, and then we'll continue with the series. So uh, Pat's pilot script was fantastic. And she called me, and uh, she called uh, four or five other writers, and we all got together, and she said, I want you guys to write this first batch of scripts. And, and, and she kind of talked to us about which either part of the novel she wanted us to adapt into our script or, um, what area that was original and not in the novel might be developed as a script. So I, uh, she handed a, a section to me It was very compelling, uh, in the novel and, um, uh, where, uh, t- uh, Miss Alice, Tyne Daly's character, uh, tells the story of her being raped as a young girl and how it changed her life and it's just it's very powerful in the, in the book and it informs a lot about the character and it makes a lot of things come into perspective very quickly and very dramatically so the script went well uh, uh, Pat liked it the, the studio and the network liked it and the next thing I knew she called me in and said listen you know they're shooting the pilot and uh, i'm going to be there for a couple of weeks but i can't stay and i'd like to I'd like you to come in and be the supervising producer and oversee the, the production out there so i can get back there we're shooting in tennessee like so i can you know come back to la and get the rest of the, the scripts going the news stories and um and I, I forgot how many we did that first season. It was like a short season of maybe eight episodes. So uh, I was thrilled, and I went to Tennessee, and she and I spent a couple of days together on the set. I met everybody, and then she left, and I stayed. And the show was a huge hit, uh, and her, her pilot script was the highest-rated TV movie on any network that entire year. It aired on an Easter Sunday. Very uh, big response. It was Invigorating for me creatively on, on every level and um, and then I came back to LA when we repped and we uh, we developed all the scripts for the next season and I wrote several of those and went back to Tennessee uh, rotating with another uh, writer another producer we brought in and we, t- we took turns being uh, the the babysitter on the set and to solving when product- I say babysitter you know you're solving production problems um you're, you're you're answering actors questions you're trying to keep things moving um so it doesn't get bogged down in whatever you know uh artistic questions can really slow you down and somebody can be answering those and 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 also you know administering when the actors have notes and ideas about their character you know you can judge if they work or not and you can put those in the scripts and so forth so that's how it happened and and it was a wonderful experience uh the best part about that there were two uh one is kelly martin who who starred as christy
0: i love her uh,
1: came came to my house one night we were watching an episode she and her boyfriend came over and pat green was there and my wife and me and and kelly was real cute real shy and had an idea for an episode and we said well yeah gee that'd be great whatever what do you think so she handed us a, a typed outline and it was a wonderful idea for a story and we said well this is great what do you want to do she said, "Well, I, i'm not a writer you know tom i'd like you to write it and i said sure so the story is her story and then i developed it out a little bit and then i wrote the script and then the same thing happened with time daily one night we were out on the set on a mountain in Tennessee at midnight, you know, and we're standing out there and, you know, she, Tyne is an extremely literate, extremely knowledgeable artist, and she said, you know, I've got this idea, and she's all about history, and and she told me this idea, and I said, that's fantastic. She said, well, good, would you write it with (laughs) me? And I said, hell yeah. And I called Pat you know with three hour time difference uh, so I was able to call her and just said Tyne just had this amazing idea she said oh my god I love that so Tyne and I worked you know on the set and at night and on weekends developing a story and and, uh, we wrote a script It won a bunch of awards it was one of the episodes she submitted uh, that she won an Emmy that year for acting the best supporting actress and it was a real career highlight I mean it was just I mean, to to work with somebody that intimately, who's that knowledgeable, that that savvy, was was exhilarating. Oh, that's amazing! I I'm
0: uh-huh. a big fan of both oh, right, those by the way, women. And there
1: was a sequel version of Christie Several years later, it was canceled eventually by CBS, and then the Pax Network uh, wanted to kind of pick up where the other show left off and finish the book, finish the stories. So I was hired as the executive producer on that one. Pat was unavailable, and and I I got the nod, and I was able to put many of the original cast members in it. We shot that one in Vancouver, but we tried to keep the spirit of the first production alive and and well, and um, it was really neat. I brought in one of the original writers, uh, two of the original writers to write, we did we did three two hour movies. I wrote one and then they each wrote one and then I kinda wove them together and um so it was not the same show but it was a lot of the same characters and and, and uh some of the same actors and that, that was really just nobody gets that opportunity to go back to the well, you know. And it was uh it was a real privilege, I'll tell you that. Real privilege.
0: I saw that too. Um <laughs> because <laughs> um, I happened to be I was a, I was a fan of the original series and when I saw the movie I had to watch it I mean the series of movies I had to watch them
1: and it was it was fun you know we were able to you know Christy grew up a little bit as a character uh, Kelly Martin when I got the job uh, you know I, I called the first thing I did I asked them well is Kelly on board and they went well Kelly doesn't want to do it and I said well oh, I gee I gotta I have to find that one. What, what to deal with that because we were friends, and I, Shirley lived about a mile from my house, and I, I just I had to know, so I called her on the way home and just said, "They, I'm doing the show," and they said, "They called you? Did they really call you?" And she said, "Yeah, but you know, I'm not that girl anymore. And this is you know eight years down the road, and I'm married woman now, and I I can't play that girl now, you know. And even though she could, she still looked very youthful and all of that. She just felt that she had. Outgrown the certain special quality of that character, and so the biggest challenge for me was finding someone else that could step into Kelly Martin's shoes, one of the most experienced young actresses you know you would ever want to meet
0: yeah.
1: and, and it, it was massive search to find the the young woman who would be portraying her you know uh, a, a year after the original series ended, supposedly, um, but bring to it now, instead of being a girl who was almost a woman, now having someone who was a young woman, and and develop all of the romantic uh, and uh, spiritual challenges that a young woman would have that were different than perhaps a, a young girl or a, a a girl, not quite a woman. So that was the big challenge on that one. But what, a, what an honor to get to do both versions of that production. It was great.
0: So cool. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the changes in the industry um, and also how you feel that the industry itself is handling what's going on with COVID. Um, mm-hmm. uh, first, the changes in the industry.
1: Changes in the industry. Well, since I started uh, back in the day, you know, there were four <laughs> networks. You know, when if you count when Fox Network uh, came, when came on the air uh, with Married with Children and some of those shows, uh, th- there were three networks plus plus PBS and then a fourth network, Fox, came on the air. And that was it. Uh, there was some syndicated programming, but uh, it was a smaller universe of places to sell shows, to make shows, to, you know, to air shows. So now, of course, you can't, I mean, you don't even know all the places where shows are are airing. You know, the cable universe is massive. The pay-per-view, the streaming uh, thing is, you know, bigger and bigger every day. Um, The commercial networks are there, independent stations are there, so... There's just a lot of places that are showing product. Um, you know, yes, they're running all the old shows and stuff that I used to work on. But the fact is, it's it's very competitive, but competitive differently. You know, how does anybody even hear about all these shows? And how do they get the word out? There's, there's something to be said for maybe too much material, because there's a lot of stuff out there for the for the public. To choose from and how do you as a producer get your great idea noticed because you know it's hard it's hard to to get noticed when there's 58 other things you know competing for your attention so um these streaming services like like um netflix and amazon prime and all of that you know they have um They've carved out this massive niche for themselves because they, um, you know, they, they can stream all these shows. All you know, you can binge watch, which everybody now wants to do. So, viewer habits have changed. Most of us don't want to sit and wait a week for our favorite show to come on. We want to see it right now. We want to see all of them right now. I want to I want to watch three of them a night. You know, like I'm sure you do too. So. Um, so that has changed your habits have changed what, what they call appointment television meaning I have an appointment Mondays at 8 to watch my favorite sitcom is passe nobody wants to do that anymore young people don't want to do it and most people that have tried some of these other viewing options don't want to do it anymore. they they want what they want, and they want it now. We're all a little impatient, and we should be. why sh- why should we have to consume our our programming? You know, because that's the way NBC said we have to do it. So the networks are trying to figure out what to do. They have their own streaming services. these uh, streaming services and and cable outlets are all changing daily, trying to figure out how to compete, how to keep audiences interested. And, uh, you know, the good news for creative people is that there's a million places that you can potentially sell your show and put it on TV, you know, and and have people watch it. You know, not to mention, you know, YouTube shows and and some of those other uh, computer-based It's um uh, it's a very different landscape than it was even you know 10, 15 years ago. And it's very exciting, but they're still frankly trying to sort out what's what and who's going to survive and how it's all going to work. And uh, you know networks, you know, like HBO and Showtime, cable networks that were premier, destinations for top creative people to bring their product nobody's been talking about them anymore because they all want to go to netflix or amazon or or one of these other places so everything is changing and most of it's for the good i think um but we'll see you know because there's an awful lot of stuff out there that people have never even heard of some great shows I don't know what your life is like, but people are always saying, "Hey, have you watched this show on on Netflix?" No, I never heard of it. Well, you got to watch it; it's great. Yeah. You know, well, how come I never heard of it? Yeah. You know, I read a lot of newspapers, and I well, because they can't get the word out. I mean, how are they supposed to tell you about every show they have? You know, and, and get my attention or your attention? And it's very difficult uh, for them. So they're trying. They're still trying to figure that out. And uh all viewers are trying to figure out how you know what to watch and how to watch it, how to consume it um, but it's great you know i mean it's 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 uh, you know very satisfying i in general, I just love it. there's like an infinite universe of things you could go look at and try, which That's is true. something that we were all denied for a long long time.
0: It's funny because I remember when I was a kid. And I hadn't seen a show before, I had to figure out the rerun schedule and figure out my, uh, either school or work to figure out how to see the whole series and not miss an episode. Because it wasn't recordings then. You couldn't record it unless you did it on an audio thing, which wasn't the same. Uh, right. th- you had to figure out by the reruns the summer reruns the summer reruns were gold for us people who loved television and couldn't see everything
1: <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely and so networks still do that but you know their audience share that is their share of the people watching television is shrinking dramatically because people don't want to consume their stuff uh, their programs on the network's schedule they want to do it on their own schedule
0: no. you know I
1: That's want it I want it now give it to me You're not I gonna mean give it to me I'm not going to watch you I'm going to watch something else and so it's it's a, it's really interesting how it has all changed
0: it is and, uh, as a, as uh, and, a watcher
1: <laughs> you know I, I'm not making shows anymore I don't do that anymore but um uh, I, I would be frustrated on one hand to be working on something I'm really proud of and know that 99% of the universe never heard of it and never will, you know. And then it would be very exciting and rewarding because, you know, the the, the they tend to make fewer episodes and the budgets are larger and um, than they used to be proportionately. So it would be nice to have that much... Uh, storytelling fuel, so to speak, you know, to to do whatever the show was.
0: But how do you feel about people, like, say, watching Christy on their phone?
1: Ah, that's very interesting. Uh, Really interesting question, Sherry. Um, I used to teach a class at California State University, Long Beach, uh, in media aesthetics. And one of the things that I used to talk about Uh, With my students, was um, when you're evaluating a show or a movie, one of the considerations is, you know, when it was made, you know, what what were their intentions when they made it, uh, you know, what were they up against, you know, if it worked in 1950, well, it may not meet your aesthetic standards now, but in 1950, it worked really well. So it's important to be aware of that. But the other thing um, that is um, uh, really Im- important is what was it intended for in terms of a viewing um, experience and then how are people actually going to consume it. If you made Schindler's List do you really want somebody watching that on their iPhone? Yeah,
0: exactly. You know I mean?
1: or, or just Saving Private Ryan when they're uh, assaulting the Omaha Beach the mo- one of the most powerful uh, Military battle sequences probably ever filmed. Unbelievable uh, what they did, and, and 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 the way it sounds with the, all the surround sound and everything that they that's going on there. It's absolutely spellbinding. And to think that somebody been watching that on their iPad or on an iPhone uh, is almost criminal in a way. And I used to just say to them, as filmmakers or executives, it's important that you be aware of how your product is going to be consumed. It's not always going to be on a big screen TV. And I would say to my students, I had you know 200 people in the lecture hall. I said, how many people here do not own a television? You know, and over half the hands would go up. Wow. They don't even own a TV. They watch everything on their computer or on their iPhone. And I said, well, there you go. Now, if you're going to work on a movie that costs $100 million to make, and, and it's supposed to be on a big, wide screen. How do, you, how do you immunize yourself from it being a substandard experience for the viewer if they're only going to watch it on a three inch iPhone screen as opposed to a massive, you know, surround sound uh, home theater uh, type of thing? And, you know, it was eye opening for them because most of them literally do not even own a TV. They
0: don't consume consume
1: stuff Um, like like people did in past generations. And some of those people will never own a TV. They'll just watch what they want or they'll stream it on their laptop or they'll watch it on their iPhone. And so as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, you would be very naive to not have that in the back of your mind. Is this going to work? in a, what I'll call a smaller environment. When we mix the audio for a movie or a TV show on these what we call dubbing stage, it's a huge, uh, a huge uh, recording studio where the, the show is projected on a screen and there's three, two or three or four engineers mixing all the music and the sound effects and the dialogue, and, and you do that for a couple of days uh, per TV episode and you get everything just right, all the perspective, everything. Well, what they do is they're mixing on these state-of-the-art huge speakers, what we call the bigs. And then before anybody signs off on a a mix of a sequence, they'll say, okay, it sounds great in the bigs, let's play it on the smalls. And over in the corner, they've got a crappy old TV with one speaker in it, you know, from your grandma's house, and they run the, run the audio back through that just to see if it has an acceptable sound quality. And, you know, not everything, if you mix it for surround sound, a friend of mine did one of the Star Trek movies, and he was in charge of the sound, and, you know, they had the state-of-the-art surround sound system, and, and they spent weeks and weeks and weeks mixing the sound. He said, okay, now we've got to mix it down to stereo. And they went through the whole process again and mixed it down to two speakers, because a lot of theaters in those days only had stereo speakers, and and then they mixed it down again for people who had, at that time had TVs that just had that one speaker, you know, under the dial, you know. Well, it has to sound good in each of those configurations, and you know now. You can bet when they do a movie and stuff, they somebody's playing it back through a, an iPhone, uh, you know, through uh, through uh, either earbuds or just through the speaker, just to see if you can you hear the dialogue. Is it discernible? Is it can you hear the are the footsteps too loud? Is the music overpowering? Because when you start crunching down all of those sources of sound, you know, when you have surround sound speakers, that that's easy comparatively. But then you have to squeeze it all down into uh, you know 50 pounds of stuff into a 5 pound box so to speak and then what's it going to sound like all compressed and crammed into one narrow uh, sonic space and, uh, and so all of those considerations have to happen uh, f- to prepare your product for whatever's going to happen to it down the line when it's out of your hands and the consumer is in charge because the consumer is now in charge. We weren't in charge years ago. The networks were, the studios. Now the consumers are in charge. They'll watch it when they want to watch it, the way they want to watch it, and it better be good. So your job is aesthetically to try to prepare whatever it is you're working on to, to be appealing, you know, to be effective in that environment. And the environment's changing all the time. We don't even know what's going to happen in 10 years. So you have to somehow, you know, a lot of times they'll pull the stuff out and then remix everything because there's a new platform that they can exhibit the stuff on, and and they can go back in and they can update the picture or the sound or whatever. And uh, so it's wild. It's it's like the Wild West out there right now.
0: It's funny because um, I had a... I had a reason to watch uh, something on a, a cell phone, on my laptop, on the TV, and on a wide movie screen. This is before the shutdown. And uh, the movie screen was great. I loved it. Except when I watched it on my laptop, I caught stuff I didn't see on the big movie screen. Mm-hmm. But, but And then I saw it on my regular television and I caught stuff that I didn't see either on the movie screen or the laptop, but you know what was the worst was my phone. I just, it just, the scope is lost on the phone. You just it can't get it. There's no way. And I, I I, kind of feel sorry for someone who says, oh, I saw this movie, and I go, oh, what movie? And they told me, and I go, oh, wasn't this scene great? And I'm giving details, and they're like, oh, I missed that. They didn't see any of it, because they're seeing it on this tiny little phone. <laughs>
1: So that goes back to, you know, what I would say to my students in that media aesthetics lecture, which is, you know, to be a, a fair critic of stuff, you know, your first goal is, well, what were their objectives, you know, what were they trying to do, and then did they do it or not, and, and you know, if they did not do it or not, why didn't they do it? And one of the things that is out of the filmmakers' hands is how the their work is going to be consumed and so um, it, it, it is a real challenge because you can anticipate only so much mm-hmm. but it's not enough if you're a real artist and you care about your work to just finish it, ship it and move on to the next job you know, you, your job is to somehow pause for a minute take a deep breath and say "Okay, well, now what about this, what about this, what about this and if you can anticipate a few of these things, uh, you might even be able to you know work it into the the way it's shot or edited, and certainly the way it sounds. And, um, uh, but there's now so many choices. You know, watching something on your your phone did not exist just a few years ago. Yeah. and now everything is on your phone. And, and everybody had a TV, it, it, probably a TV in, in every room uh, in most houses. And now, you know, college students, most of them don't even own the TV. What do I need a TV for? I can watch it on my laptop. I can watch it on my phone. So, And they're filmmakers. Those are film students who don't own a TV. And um, so if they're not watching stuff, as it was designed to be viewed, which is a nice widescreen, you know, 16 by 9 TV with a good sound system with a sound bar or something, then what what, what what's the average civilian out there doing?
0: Yeah. And,
1: and if you're not, as, a, as an artist who does media product, you're foolish and naive if you're not aware of it and trying to at least anticipate it to some extent in your work. And... Um, you know, that's why some TV shows are great. You know, when you watch my TV, and then if you were to see them on a big screen, they don't really hold up because they're not really designed to be on a screen that's really big. And, you know, I've screened many TV things for students, you know, in a big lecture hall on a screen setup, you know, and, and it's not quite as good as it was on TV or, or, or would be on TV, but they need to see it and you have to show it to everybody, so you do it. and yet, you know, that same thing on a telephone, I, you know, I don't know. I don't
0: so know it's, either.
1: It's, nobody knows. I mean, the people are guessing, but they don't really know. And they're trying to, you know, technologically anticipate things, especially through sound mix. You know, you, you can really affect the experience by how well they do what we call the mix down from many surround, t- sound, uh, surround sound tracks. To, to four or two or one
0: and
1: it, it's a different experience if that's not done correctly if you do it really well you do the mix down they can still have a similar emotional response to what they're hearing because what you're hearing affects what you think you're seeing uh, in, in film and television because the sound design is a big part of delivering an emotional experience and and so if they do it right it's not an impediment but if, if they don't do it carefully and they don't do it right you 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 where well, the dial, you can't understand the dialogue or the music's too loud or the you know all that stuff happens because it wasn't artfully mixed down to a smaller m- more narrow format for
0: the consumer um we don't have a lot of time but I want to give you plenty of time okay. for your book um why don't you give us a, uh, a, some information? What is your book about? Uh, uh, it's called Silent Partners, right?
1: Yes. Um, well, uh, let me start with a movie. Uh, it's funny when you uh, when you read the book, you were uh, citing some uh, some mythology uh, uh, elements, which was very insightful of you. I might might say. Thank you. Um, in fact, <laughs> when I wrote it, I wasn't thinking about that um, the inspiration for the silent partners uh, came from a wonderful movie called Mora 1944
0: oh I love that
1: movie (laughs) so Otto Preminger directed it based on Vero Casperi's novel Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews are the stars and if people have not seen the movie you know it's a classic but basically a woman dies and a police detective is investigating her her death and there's a painting of her in her apartment and he becomes intrigued and, and enchanted by the painting and about everything he learns about her and he basically kind of falls in love with her even though he's never met her and it's a, it's a really good movie and you know that storytelling device has been used in, in a few uh, f- few uh, short stories and things but it's a great uh idea and i was like that movie but i thought well what if she actually had met her before the investigation and what if they had a chemical spark what if they made love what if what if they had like a brief moment in time together then she dies and he's investigating it. What would that emotional invest, investment be for him? And, you know, writers live in a world of what ifs. So it's what if this, what if this, what if this. And for me, it was what if it had the moment of everybody's dreams with this beautiful, talented person. And now she's gone and he's forced to investigate what happened to her so that was the what if of my novel and in my novel uh, she is a superstar a pop singer he is a medical student at UCLA who works part time uh, as a backstage paramedic to pay for his schooling and he meets the girl and they have you know a a, a romance uh, and the next night she's dead and He can't believe that she's gone. He thought, geez, there there might actually be a future. It was an amazing, special, magical kind of encounter. And the coroner says there was a drug overdose, rock star drug overdose, end of story. And he said, I can't believe it. I I can't believe that the woman I made love to was a drug user. I, I looked in her eyes and there was none of that. And he starts to look into what happened. And then someone tries to stop him from looking. And so Silent Partners is his attempt to t- to set the story straight, to find out what happened and to set the story straight. And in the the story, there is a rather supernatural aspect to it where she returns to him periodically to encourage him to keep looking and argue with him about when he wants to give up and, and he doesn't know what's happening but it's obviously disturbing to him that she keeps coming back and, and, uh, and he's coming unglued as in the course of things so, because the more he looks the more someone's pushing back um, it's set in Los Angeles and you know he's really pressed to the limits of what any person could take or should ever have to take and, um, but he's continuing to fall deeper and deeper in love with her, even though she's now gone. Um, and he has to, he owes it to her, he feels, to solve what
0: happened to her. Um, I hate to, like, just go into the nitty gritty, but. Is it available? Is
1: it on Amazon? How do people get it's on it? Amazon? It's on Amazon, uh, both in print and Kindle. Uh, there's also an audio book, which you have heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the uh, at my website, uh, TomBlumquist.com, T-O-M-B-L-O-M-Q-U-I-S-T.com, uh, there's a movie trailer that we did. Uh, I brought some actors together to do selected scenes uh, as you would in a movie trailer so you get an idea what the story is or some reviews uh, there from, uh, from experts whether they're other writers or uh, academics or reviewers uh, and then there's a lot of fan responses on, on there too I've received so many uh, emails uh, and text messages from people uh, and I posted those there as well so there's a sample of the audiobook up on the page, uh, uh, and there's the movie trailer, and um, and the guy that plays the lead in the movie trailer, uh, William Sterling, uh, is also the actor who reads the, the audiobook. book. Uh, and that was fun, too. You know, just not that anybody cares, but it was mm-hmm. fun for me to work with him uh, in his shaping his performance as we went in the studio and recorded the his performance he plays all the characters and all the dialects and all the well you've heard it i mean he's really remarkable what he does you'd swear there's more than one person in some of those scenes and it's just him it's great i had a lot of fun working on it but yes (laughs) amazon.com there
0: it is that's great um Also, so if someone wants to say hi, uh, what social media do you have, and can you give what you're under on the social media?
1: Okay, so let's see. What is the best way to do this? Uh, Instagram, um, I am at, let's see, what is my, uh, I'll tell you in a second. Since I never use it. I don't know, uh, what is it? It's, it is don't go away I'll tell you isn't that funny I don't know what my Instagram thing is because I I never write myself so how how pathetic is that I guess it's probably typical Um, I should have probably come up with something that was easy to remember for me but um, well you know what I now I can't even tell you what it is so um, let me how funny is that is that normal? Yeah, it's, it's pretty not. much. Is, is it, it
0: on your website?
1: I, I should know that, but I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not much of a mercenary, you know, <laughs> at all this. But, you know, the idea that I have 58 ways to find me and all that—it's, it, um Hang on, I can't. Why? Why is that? I'm on the Instagram and I can't find my? You can't uh, find yourself? Yeah, I mean, where's? Where would I find
0: my? It should be right there. It should have, like, at the top. It should have, like, at, oh, and then it. next to
1: I it? see my picture up there on the computer screen. Go Which
0: to your profile. Okay.
1: Well, I bet people are just... Really, searching.
0: Like, they really they're want they're
1: them. They're, they're waiting. waiting. <laughs> and this guy wrote a book? <laughs> wait a minute. This guy produced TV shows? What a moron. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I don't. I can't find it. Okay. Uh, uh, how sad I know it's Tom Blunt with something but I don't know I can't I how pathetic wait a minute maybe it's over here while we're talking I'll look it up okay um,
0: do you think that you have
1: oh, don't hold it against me uh, this just proves that anybody can be a TV producer and a novelist if I don't even know what I'm doing with social media but that is the way to, to reach me is through that and people do all the time it's just I never use it so I mean I don't ever write it so that's my uh, my sad story, but I'm going to find it here in a second. And then we'll here's Instagram. Let's see what it says. Um, but that's the way to that's that's the best way to reach me. Um, and um, so, well, I'm looking here, and I still can't find it.
0: Could it be on your website? Oh. Do you put your stuff on your website, like your social media, on there?
1: Yes, go to right. Go to townbelongers com and. And it should be, it should be there. Here it is. Tom Blumquist is one word, 7758. Okay. Sorry, I everybody. Mean, how lame, how embarrassing. Uh, but there you have it. Yes, 7758. Tom Blumquist, 7758. And, uh, and yes, or, or the TomBlumquist.com, and, and I'll make sure it's there as well.
0: And do you have Facebook and all that on there as well?
1: Yes yep absolutely i'm I'm on Facebook and uh, uh but you know probably the is the best the best
0: you know, place the to reach
1: you book. yeah
0: okay yeah. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show um, I hope you enjoyed it
1: <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. I can't believe the time has flown by.
0: <laughs> thank you, and thank you for chatting with sherry thank you.